Yes, well, you are welcome for that uh, anytime, anytime. Uh, but hey, real quick, I do want to say for all the moms out there, for all the uh, moms in waiting, for all the women who have stood in the gap to be moms, for all the mother-in-laws, um, we love you too. And also for all the stepmoms, we are just so grateful for you. And it's so true that um, without you, none of us would be here. And so thank you for the example of love and grace and courage and strength that you've shown us. And it's so true that we need to treat you right more than just one day a year, right? Yeah. So, uh, man, you know, I used to be a student ministry pastor years and years ago before becoming a church planter. Um, we, we just launched Journey like two months ago, uh, which it's crazy to me to, to see like how far we've come and, and how fast time has flown, uh, but we're, we're still a new church, we're still growing and, and uh, all this stuff, figuring things out, and so, um, but before I was a church planter, uh, I was a student ministry pastor, and I oversaw a middle school and high school ministry, middle school and high school students, and uh, once a year, every single year, we would take a week-long mission trip with high school students, and then we take a week-long mission trip with middle school students. Uh, when we took our high school students somewhere, we, we'd go to Ensenada, Mexico, where we'd go there for a week. We'd build a house from scratch. At the end of the week, we'd hand over the keys to this family that didn't have a house. And then um, for our middle school students, we would take this week-long trip down to Atlanta, where we'd work with different organizations that were there. We worked with the homeless ministry that was there and some other organizations that helped kids there in Atlanta. And every time we did one of these week-long mission trips, uh, as a student ministry pastor, I always made it my mission to select a song that would be the theme song for the week. And uh, one of the songs that I chose one year was this song that you just heard. And you can just envision it, right? I mean, eight to 10 hours driving to Atlanta in a 15-passenger van with a couple adults and packed with middle school students, and we're listening to this over and over and over again. The kids hated it, right? But we listened to it on repeat, and then there was a moment where like midweek, like these kids love this song, and they're like, let's play the song again, and we'd be in the car, and we'd be singing this song, rapping to the song, and it's because of that week in Atlanta that this song has been seared into my soul, and it is seared into the souls of about 14 other middle school age kids who are now about 27 years old who are probably still singing it. And so this is, I wanted to share this treasure with you today so that hopefully it becomes part of your life as well. And, and I love Mr. T. M Mr. T is great. How, how many of you know and remember the catchphrase that Mr. T made famous? What was it? I pity the fool. That's right. I pity the fool. And I always wondered why he said, I pity the fool. And then I came across this explanation that he gave as to why he said, I pity the fool. He said this, you pity the fool because you don't want to beat up a fool. You know, pity is between sorry and mercy. See, if you pity him, you know, you won't have to beat him up. So that's why I say fools, you got to give another chance because they don't know no better. That's why I pity them. Clears it up right there. Right? But, but, but I love Mr. T. And uh, this, this phrase that he came up with, I'm pitiful, it, it's been um, just part of our culture, and it's, and it's just, just something that, that we recall. And, and I wonder, as you think about this phrase, I pity the fool. Have you ever been called a fool? Has anybody ever called you a fool? I mean, I think about it. There's a lot of things that you could be called, and I think fool is, is one of the worst ones. Like, 
Because the word fool means you're stupid. I mean, it means somebody saying you're an idiot. The, the, the word fool means silly or unwise. Like, I, I've been called a lot of things in my life, but if I've been called a fool, those are fighting words, right? I wanna, have you ever been called a fool in your life? And I know, I know it's Mother's Day, and I know, I know you got plans, uh, maybe plans to go to brunch or maybe to go to lunch afterwards, and, and I don't want to mess up your Mother's Day, but I do want to interrupt your regularly scheduled Mother's Day, and I want to ask you if you might be a fool this morning. We've been in the midst of this series called The Me That I Want to Be, and uh, this, is, this is a series where we're e examining this reality that I've come to find in my own life. I think you see it in your own life, and it's this, that there's this me that I see and then there's this me that I want to be. And oftentimes there's a gap in between. And so I look in the mirror and there's this me that I see, but then there's this me that I want to be, and they're not always the same. And so the, 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 the me that I see is, or, or, or the, the me that I want to be is somebody who's patient, but the me that I see in the mirror here and now is somebody who gets frustrated easily. And so the, the me that I want to be is somebody who's disciplined, but the me that I see is somebody who gives into things because it's easy and convenient. The me that I, I see is somebody who's present, but the me that I want to be is, is somebody who, um, or, or the, the me that I want to be is somebody who's present, but the me that I see in the mirror is somebody who gets distracted easily. See, see oftentimes there's this gap between what it is we see in the mirror and who it is we want to be. And what we've been discovering throughout this series is that we can actually bridge the gap we can become the kind of people that we want to become. And the way we're finding to do that is through journeying what we call the journey way. The, the journey way is really just a, a set of our values as a church. It, it's who we are and how we operate as a church. But these aren't just values for our church, for our organization. These are values that, that I believe if you adopt in your own life and they become your values, they'll change everything for you. And they'll help you bridge that gap between what you see in the mirror and who you want to be. And so where we've been throughout this series is we've said that for us to bridge this gap, we need to recklessly run with Jesus. We said that we need to be what we want to see. And then last week, we talked about the value that we have real is all we know. That we need to embrace some vulner uh, vulnerability and authenticity because real is all we know. And so if you miss any of those, you can go back and listen to them on our podcast. You can find that on our website. You can also see it on iTunes. But um, today, the value that I want to camp out on is the value that we have. Gratitude is our middle name. Gratitude is our middle name. You know, at our um, house, we have a door that slides into the wall, and uh, it slides out to separate the kitchen from the, the living room. And what my wife did was she painted this door with chalkboard paint so that we can uh, write all kinds of different things on this door, and that's become like our values door as a family. And so we can look at this door and we can see the values that we have as a family. And one of the things that we wrote on that door is we are grateful. We are grateful. I don't know about you, but I want to be the kind of person who, who lives in gratitude. I want to be the kind of person who lives grateful. I want my kids to be grateful. Because when you think about what it means to be grateful, when, when you think about what it means to live in an attitude of gratitude, it, it's having this posture where it's like, oh, man, I didn't even expect that. Thank you. Right? Gra gratitude is, oh, wow, this is amazing. Gratitude is, oh, my heart is warm. This is, this is, gratitude is positive. And when you think about the opposite of it, like, 
like not being grateful, in ingratitude, un ungrateful, it, it's negative. Somebody who's ungrateful is entitled. It's like, it belongs to me. You, you owe that to me. What do you mean, thank you? Like, I expected it from you. Of course you were going to do that. That's ungrateful. And when we think about people who are grateful or ungrateful, we want to be around people who are grateful. We're drawn to people like that. We want to be the kind of people who are grateful. Because grateful is, man, this is great, this is amazing, oh, I'm so thankful. Ungrateful is complaining and grumbling, and this isn't good enough. So I want to be the kind of person who lives with gratitude. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. So how do we become the kind of people who live with gratitude? How do we become the kind of people where gratitude is our middle name? I think, I think the answer is actually found in the beginning, like in the beginning of the beginning. In, in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it begins with this creation account about how God created everything. And here's, here's how it begins. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So in the very beginning, we have this picture of nothing. So just see that in your mind. Nothing. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so God speaks, and from nothing comes something. God speaks, and from darkness emerges light. So there was nothing, and now there's something, and God speaks it into existence. And then God begins to use his words to create this world. And God continues on, and he creates sky and land. He creates vegetation, plants, trees, shrubs. God goes on to create stars, sun, moon, galaxies. And then he goes on to create fish and birds, and then he speaks animals that roam along the land all in the span of six days. This is what Genesis says. And then God gets to the pinnacle of his creative genius. He creates a man in his own image. Now, before God creates this man, he's created everything else by speaking it into existence. Now, when it's time for him to create the man, what he does, he does something he, we haven't seen yet. He doesn't speak man into existence. Instead, what he does is he gets down on his hands and knees. God, on his hands and knees. And from the dust of the ground, he forms the figure of a man with his own hands. He forms the figure of this man. And as he's forming him, getting him just right, I need to move this here and put this here. As he's forming him, he takes care in how he crafts his creation. And then, when it's just right, God breathes his breath into his lungs and brings him to life. Can I just point out that this is commentary about you. The creation of man is commentary about you. God didn't speak you into existence, but you come from one who was formed who was crafted, handcrafted by God. God took care on this.
God took care on humanity, and he breathed his own breath into his lungs. Can I just let you know, you're made in God's image, and God took great care when he formed you in your mother's womb. He formed you with a plan and a purpose for your life. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. I don't know what it is you see in the mirror, but when you look in the mirror, my hope is that you see someone who is formed, fashioned with purpose. You are good enough. God does love you. God created you just the way that you are. And he looks at you as his masterpiece. And I wonder this morning if you see yourself that way. Because that's how you are. But it goes beyond that. Not only are you God's masterpiece, created in his image, but the person sitting next to you is too. I don't know your relationship with the person sitting next to you. Hopefully you're like, yeah, they are. You're like, I don't know about that. But they're God's masterpiece too. Can I just take it a step further? The person who ghosted on you is also God's masterpiece. The person who cussed you out two years ago that you still have a grudge against, they're God's masterpiece. The person who mistreated you and handled you wrong, they're God's masterpiece as well. Uh, and this brings up so much. But you were formed in fashion with a purpose, and so were they. And my hope is that you come to a point, if you're not there yet, where you would learn to love yourself because God loves you for who you are and not as you should be because none of us are as we should be. And that you would begin to love the people in your life because they're just as hurt and broken as you are. And they need love too. So God creates this man from the dust of the ground. He breathes his breath into his lungs. And then here's what we see. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. And then the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden, in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. The middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit from every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So the scene is set. God creates everything by speaking it into existence. Because of his words, light emerges from darkness. Because of his words, there's rocks and plants and trees and birds and, and, and moon and sun and stars. All this is created. And then God forms this man from the dust of the ground. He breathes his breath in his lungs. And then he places him in this garden to live. He says, you can eat from any tree that's in the garden except for this one over here. This one's mine. Leave it alone. But everything else is yours. Have at it. Now, seeing this scene, if you were to ask Adam, hey, Adam, tell me about all that you see. Where did it come from? Adam would say, oh, that's easy. It came from God. Like all of it. All of it. Like, like, like everything. I mean, my home, it came from God. God was the one who made this garden. He put me in it. The work that I have, it came from God. Because remember, Adam was put in the garden to tend to it. That's work. He said, oh, yeah, that came from God. All the food that I have came from God. Everything I have, even my very next breath, came from God. Because he gave it to me. See, if you were to ask Adam, 
about everything he saw, everything he experienced. People tell me about this. He say, oh, it's all a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. Right? All of it, all of it, all of it is a gift. It all came from God, not from me. It's all a gift. And this is where gratitude comes from, realizing that it's all a gift, all of it. You know, I think oftentimes the difference between not being grateful and being grateful is a change in perspective. If we would just see things differently, then we would come to understand that it's all a gift. Our perspective would shift. I want to show you what I mean. Take a look at this image right here. This is the one that's been up. There's another one. It's about a car. Yeah, the difference between gratitude is just about how you see things. It's a shift in perspective. And so, if you were to ask Adam, hey, where did it all come from? It all came from God. It all came from God. None of it's mine. It's all God's. It's all a gift. And so I imagine that Adam lived in a place of gratitude because he realized all of it's a gift. And then there's this moment, like, like God sees where Adam's life is headed and he knows what's going to happen. God knows that he's not finished yet with Adam and he knows that Adam is going to head to a place of loneliness. And so before God gives him the very next gift that he's going to give him, he needs to help Adam understand and see and experience this loneliness he's about to feel. And so what God does is he gives Adam an assignment. He says, Adam, I want you to name all the animals in the entire world. And so God parades the animals in front of Adam. They're parading through. Adam sees all the different animals, and he begins to name them. And then when he's done, he's finished, it's over, there's this realization that Adam has. All these animals have a match. They have a mate. But as they look around, I don't see a mate for me. I don't see a match for me. And it's in this moment after God parades these animals in front of Adam, Adam completes his assignment. He sees that there's no match for him. That loneliness begins to set in. Adam's all alone on this planet filled with animals. There's no match for him though. Sure, he has God. But that's not enough. And God knows that. Can I just let you know, sometimes people say all you need is God. And that's not true. Because Adam had God, and yet he was still alone. He needed somebody else. Because you and I, we were created to do life with other people. We can't do this alone. So Adam had God, and yet he was still alone. So then... As Adam is feeling this loneliness, and you can, you can feel it, right? Just the loneliness sinking, setting deep into his bones. 
the despair is setting in. Adam is living in this place of darkness. It's just me. God puts him to sleep, and he removes a rib from Adam. And then from this rib, God creates Eve, woman. He makes a match for the man. And you can see as Adam is waking up from this anesthetized sleep, and he's still groggy, and he's, he's, he's like just rubbing his eyes as the light of day is shining in. He's waking up, and he can see just like 10 yards away from him, there's this figure of, of something he's never seen before. It's this, this woman, and she's relaxing, lounging in the shade, eating grapes, and she's naked. What a sight. I mean, Adam has never seen this before. He's seen the tigers. They don't have clothes. But they don't do something for him like this person in front of him. He wakes up. He's seen the elephants. He's seen everything in all of creation. But now he sees this woman right in front of him, one who's just like him, one who looks like him, but even better. Lounging, relaxing, and she's If you were to ask Adam, hey, tell me about her, Adam would say, oh, whoa, man. By the way, that's how she got her name because when Adam saw her, he was like, whoa, man, right? So she's called woman. So he must have been like, whoa, man, let me tell you about Eve. Man, it was crazy because I was alone. It was just me. And then I woke up and out of nowhere, here's this woman and she was naked. And, whoa, she takes my breath away. Where'd she come from, Adam? Ah, oh, God. She came from God. She's a gift. She's a gift. She's a gift. She's a gift. If you were to ask Adam, hey, when you look around and you see everything you have, where did it come from? Adam would say it all came from God. All of it. All of it. All of it. Which means all of it is a gift. I wonder, do you think Adam ever was ungrateful for Eve? After experiencing the depths of the loneliness that he felt after knowing it was just him and then all of a sudden here's this gift of a woman of a wife. Can't imagine he ever took for granted Eve because it's all a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. Let me ask you, when you think about your life and everything you have, do you see it as a gift? When you woke up today and you saw how crappy the weather was, did you say, thank God for today because it's a gift? Or did you say, well, today sucks. Maybe I'll go to church. I don't know. It's a gift. Ah. Because, you know, some people plan on waking up today and they didn't. But you did. It's a gift. Do you understand that? That the house that you have is a gift. Doesn't seem like a gift. I got to keep fixing stuff that break. It's a gift. Because people don't have a house, man. The job that you have. Well, if you knew my boss, you wouldn't say, no, there'd be 10 people who would love to have your job if you didn't have it. It's a gift. It's a gift. Your kids? <laughs> you spend one night with my kids, you'll see what I'm saying. Ah, it's a gift. Because there's some people who would love to have kids and can't. It's a gift. The resources that you have, finances that you have, the car that you have, my crappy car, I keep playing. it's a gift. Do you understand that? Do you understand the person you're married to is a gift? It may not seem like it, but they are. And I wonder, 
I wonder if we adopted this idea, this mindset, this attitude that everything, everything, everything is a gift. I wonder if that would change it for us. I wonder if the reason why in your marriage you're not happy because you don't see each other as a gift. I wonder if the reason why you're disgruntled with your kids is because you don't see them as a gift. I wonder if the reason why you hate your stupid car out there is because you don't see it as a gift. Maybe your car's not stupid, right? My car's not stupid, but I wonder what would happen. Maybe the reason you're feeling the way you're feeling about what you're feeling about and what's in front of you is because you've forgotten that it's a gift. All of it's a gift. All of it. It changes everything when you understand that. Earlier, I, I asked the question uh, if maybe you're a fool, and I, I want to be very clear. I'm not calling you a fool. I would never call you a fool, but I wonder if God might call you a fool. And what I mean is this. There, there are two times in the scriptures where God calls somebody a fool, and both times when God calls somebody a fool, it's around the topic of money and resources and what they have. And I want to show you one time where God calls somebody a fool. Jesus is telling this story. It's found in Luke chapter 12. He says this. He says, and he told them this parable. Now, a parable is a, a, a story, a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus is trying to get a point across. And he said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He has an abundant harvest. Now he has more than he could imagine. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it'll be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So Jesus tells us that the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And I want to point a couple things out about this. First, the man worked hard to get this abundant harvest, okay? Like, the man had to do some work to get this abundant harvest, and so he had to till the ground. He had to plant the seeds. He had to water the seed. He had to take care of the crop. The man had to work to get the harvest he was hoping for. I wonder if some of us aren't hoping for a harvest, and we're hoping we don't have to work for it. Like, we're hoping for a harvest, but we're not willing to work for it. And so I want a great and amazing marriage. And I wonder if God is saying, yes, I want that for you as well, but you need to do some work by getting in counseling. Like, I, I know you want that, but you're going to have to do some work by seeing one another as a gift. You're going to have to do some work by operating on the same team. You've got to do some work by getting rid of the passive-aggressive tone in your communication. Yes, I want that for you too, but for you to get that, you've got to put some work in. I wonder if we're hoping for a harvest that we're not willing to work for. I want my kids to be great and amazing. I want my kids to listen. I want my kids to be productive citizens of society. And I think God is saying, yes, I want that for you as well, but you got to put some work in. you got to 
set some standards. You got to set some boundaries. You got to stop giving empty threats. You got to exercise some discipline. And after exercising some discipline, extend the hand of love to embrace them. You want your kids to be like that? Then speak life into them. Give them a vision for their life. You want your kids to be like that? Pick up my word and read with them. Don't expect the church to teach them. You want, you want this in your kid's life? You got to work for it. I wonder if we're hoping for a harvest we're not willing to work for. God, I just want to be with somebody. Well, that's great. I think God is saying, I want you to be with somebody too, but you got to put some work in. First, brush your teeth. Second, set some standards. If you want to be with somebody, how about you begin to be the person you want to be with, and the person you want to be with will want to be with you. You want to be with somebody Get out where people are and get to know them. You want to be with somebody, great. Set some standards and don't just settle for the person who comes along just because they're cute and they got most of their teeth in. No, instead, you set standards, you set boundaries, you say, here's what I'm looking for. Ladies, what it means is you probably put some makeup on. Guys, what it means is you don't put makeup on. But instead, you take a shower, you comb your hair, you trim your beard, you dress nice, and you meet somebody, and you treat them right. I wonder if we're hoping for a harvest we're not willing to put in work on. Well, I want to make more money. I want a promotion. There's no opportunities. I think God is saying, great, I want you to make more money too, but in order for you to do that, you got to work harder. You got to respond. You got to communicate better. You got to go above and beyond to get that. See, the man got an abundant harvest because he worked. Don't, I know in a, size, in a society, in a culture where we don't want to work as much, this is not a popular message. But the man got an abundant harvest because he worked hard. So you got to work hard. But I don't want you to miss this. The man worked hard, but there's another part of the equation that's vital for us to understand. And Jesus told him this parable. The ground, the ground, the ground, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The ground, the ground, the ground. The man got an abundant harvest, yes, because he worked hard. But that was only part of it. The majority of it was the ground. The ground yielded the harvest. Man had to till the ground. He had to plant the seed. He had to water and to take care of the crops. But none of the abundant harvest would have ever happened if it weren't for the ground producing. Where did the ground come from? The ground came from God. God was the one who allowed the man to have an abundant harvest. God was the one who stayed the torrential downpour so his harvest didn't drown. God was the one who provided the ground with the nutrients that it needed to be able to feed the crops so that they could grow to understand that the ground provided the abundant harvest. The problem with this guy is he looks at all of his hard work and he says, look at what I did. Look at how awesome I am. Look at my abundant harvest. And the problem, the reason God calls him a fool is because he doesn't understand where it came from. 
If you were to ask Adam in the garden, hey, Adam, when you look around and you see everything you have, where did it come from? He'd say, oh, it all comes from God. My food, the place I live, even my next breath, it's all a gift from God. You ask this guy, hey, where did it all come from? My hard work. He misses it. No, it came from God. Because God is the one who gave you the ability to work. God is the one who sustained your health so you could work. God is the one who gave you the intelligence to learn how to farm so you could work. It all came from God. This man misses it, and he thinks it all came from him. Luke 12, 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Again, this is his mindset. It's mine. I did this. It's on me. I get to do whatever I want to do with my stuff. So what shall I do? What happens is he has a problem. He has an abundance problem. It's a good problem. And the question that he's asking is, what shall I do with all the stuff that I have? If we were there in the audience, we'd raise our hand and say, I have an idea. Can I have a dollar? Right? You, 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 could, you could give some of that. Because there's other people who don't have the abundant harvest like you do. So you could help others with it. This guy doesn't understand that it's all a gift. I want you to look back at what the man said. Luke 12, 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. The guy actually believes all of it is his and all of it belongs to him and all of it came from him. Did you catch it? In three verses... He says, I, my, myself, variations of that 10 times. He can't stop talking about himself. He thinks it's all about him. He thinks it's all about his kingdom. He thinks it's everything he did, and it's all for me. And it's because of that. God says, you're a fool. You're a fool. Tonight, this, your life will be demanded from you. Because not even his life belongs to him. Do you understand that? It's not about you. It's not about me. The stuff you have is not yours. The stuff I have is not mine. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. Including the very next breath. I've recently come to discover that control is an illusion. I like to have control. I like to be in control. I like to have a plan. I like to know what's happening. But controlling is illusion. Because all it takes is one blood clot and you're gone. That's it. All it takes is one cell to produce in your body and you got cancer. Life changes like that. All it takes is going through an intersection, somebody not paying attention. And it's over. It's all a gift. All of it's a gift. 
Your very next breath is a gift. Today is a gift. The people in your life are a gift. Your job is a gift. The resources you have is a gift. And all of it, all of it, all of it comes from God. You know, one of the ways that we show that we understand this is through generosity. See, when I'm generous, I realize that none of it's mine in the first place. It all came from God. And so because it's all a gift from God, I can be generous towards others. My time is a gift, and so I'll be generous with my time. My resources, the money that I have in my possession, God entrusted it to me. And so I can be generous with the money that I have in my possession. My attention, my focus, my presence is a gift. And so I can be generous by giving that to others. A grateful person is a generous person. This man is not generous at all. At no point did he ever think, oh, maybe I've been blessed so that I can be a blessing to others. At no point did he ever think, wait, maybe God positioned me in this place to prosper so that I can um, uh, participate in his plan and purpose for my life and help others. He just thinks, what am I going to do for me? And God calls him a fool. I wonder if God might not call you a fool today, because that's your mindset. If that's the case, I want to help you break out of this uh, by embracing generosity. When we're generous, again, we understand everything we have is a gift from God, and so we give back. And so one of the ways that we begin doing this is by realizing that the resources that I have in my possession have been entrusted to me by God. And so because of that, I'm going to be generous with my resources, with my finances. This is why God talks about tithing all throughout the scriptures. And a tithe is when we give the first 10% of what God has given to us back to him. The tithe is a way of saying, God, I realize all of it's a gift. All of it comes from you, and because it all comes from you, I'm going to return back to you the first 10% of it, and then I'm going to use the 90% to live on, to save, to have fun with. When we take 100% of it and we say it's all mine, God looks and he says, you fool. It came from me, and I've blessed you to be a blessing. So will you do that? And I think God gives us a pretty good deal. I think God says, I'm going to give you 100%, and I just want you to return 10% back to me. I'm going to let you keep the 90%. That's a good deal. I'll take that. If I gave you $1,000 and I say, hey, just give me $100 back, you'd be like, sure, no problem. And you get to keep the 900 you'd be like, yeah, that's a great deal. Because I didn't have it before. It was a gift. So I want to invite you to take a step today. If you've never return the tithe, if you've never exercised generosity by giving back to God, I want to invite you to do that today. One of the things that we've done um, in our churches is we've set up what we call the 90-day tithe test. And uh, here's, here's what we believe. God says, if you test me in this, this is found in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, if you test me in this and you return the tithe, bring the first 10% back to me, see if I don't bless you. 
And I'm not talking about you give God $10, he's going to give you $1 back or anything like that. I'm not talking about necessarily financial blessings, but we find blessings in joy, in peace, in fulfillment. We, we begin to see things just working out in our lives in a different way. So, so we've set this up, the 90-day tithe test. If you commit to engage in the 90-day tithe test, the way that it works is this. You return the tithe back to God for 90 days. And if at the end of 90 days you're not fully satisfied and you don't see God's promise take place in your life, we will give it all back to you. The reason is because we don't want something from you, we want something for you. And I believe so much in God's word and what he said that I, I, I just know you're going to see a change in your life. And so if you think it's, oh, the church just wants my money, no, we don't. We'll give it back to you. We want something for you. So I want to invite you to go to our site. You can scan the mother of all QR codes here, and it will take you to a page on our site. You can navigate away from that, and you'll be able to see on our giving page where we actually have the 90-day tithe test set up. There's also a video uh, where I'm explaining uh, and answering questions about tithing and giving and why we do that. So if you have questions about that, you can take a look at that video. But I want to invite you to engage in the 90-day tithe test. You'll sign up on the form uh, and you'll just start doing that. There's instructions there on how to do that. Um, and let that be your first step. 